Hello, everybody. So our special guest today wanted to crash the cold open. Actually, it was my idea. I shouldn't put this on her uh, <laughs> because she's got um, a really cool thing that I think people who listen to this will enjoy having opinions about. Uh, our guest, Katie, Katie Utke, is a, um, a Harry Potter super fan, and she can sort pretty much any character into an accurate Hogwarts house. And so I wanted to ask you, Katie, how do you sort the core cast of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power? So Adora, I feel, is a Hufflepuff because the main reason she leaves the Horde is that she sees sort of all of this atrocity going on around her. It's wrong. She thinks everybody deserves to have a fair chance. Um, and then she sort of ends up becoming loyal to uh, the rebellion. It's a big thing at the end of the first season where all of her decisions of like, no, I have to go do this by myself. I can't let anyone else help me is to the core belief of I'm loyal to my friends and I want to make sure they stay safe. Uh, She-Ra is a lit, I mean, She-Ra is Adora, but She-Ra is also like, I guess the Gryffindor rising for lack of a better way to phrase it, kind of coming to the forefront. Um, Glimmer is a Gryffindor, 100%. Uh, Glimmer wants to be out there doing what she can and getting right up in people's faces with her sparkles. Uh, Bo is a Ravenclaw, also 100%. Apart from the fact that he was raised as a scholar by his folks, even though that's not his primary motivation, his sort of participation in the Ethereum Makers Guild and the fact that he sort of uh, keeps making these arrows and inventing new things uh, sort of goes right with the Ravenclaw creativity and intelligence. And then going to Catra and Scorpia, since they're kind of one of the main focuses of today's episode, uh, Catra is a Slytherin. That's a pretty easy answer. She wants more power for herself, uh, and also, and she's very resourceful and very good at getting what she wants, as we see in this episode when she's not being screwed over by the Horde. And uh, Scorpia is also 100% a Hufflepuff. I love that. So before we get into the episode, I'd like to know what are the three of us. So I'll start. I'm a Ravenclaw, which is probably why I uh, jive with Bo so hard. Uh, that's what a test told me. And funnily enough, in my office, when you sign up for the Slack, you have to take a Harry Potter sorting quiz and put that in your Slack. Oh, that's so good. I know that I'm a Ravenclaw. <laughs> uh, I, I want to go back for a second and just say I, I thought that Adora, Bo, and Glimmer, I'd probably put them all in Gryffindor in a sort of Harry, Ron, and Hermione mm-hmm. kind of way. But it's all up for opinion, right? Like, I'm sure all three of us would have a different point of view. That said, me being bossy and judgy of other people's opinions means I'm a Slytherin. <laughs> and I- Welcome back to another episode of She-Ra, Progressive of Power. I'm Lauren. I'm Eric. And you already heard a whole lot of goodness from our guest. This is Katie Utke. And Katie has written to our show a couple of times. And I've been pronouncing her last name wrong. I feel really bad. I'm so sorry. Thank you for being on the show. Happy to be here. And it's okay. (laughs) I think I've counted on my... Yeah, I think I can count on one hand how many people have pronounced it right at the first go. So it's not an easy name to figure out. Much appreciated for the forgiveness. Um, Katie has 
brought a lot of great ideas from her many delves into fandom. Definitely a huge Harry Potter super fan, wore lots of Hufflepuff gear today, but uh, has a lot of knowledge about Buffy, which I know is is huge in She-Ra fandom and Steven Universe and all sorts of things. So we're really excited to have such a big fan talking with us today. So you were kind of primed from the go to be uh, sympathetic to She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm I'm not familiar with the original show. My goal, because I, I have been jokingly described by a lot of people as sort of living under a pop cultural rock growing up. Not intentionally. It's not like my parents were like, oh, we're not going to show you things. But it's just things did not appear in front of me for some reason. So it's been a lot of um, it's been a lot of going back and rediscovering uh, and. You know, She-Ra was ta- the original She-Ra was taken off of Netflix before I could get around to watching it. Which is so bizarre. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah, you can purchase it much cheaper now than you could a couple weeks ago, but it's still weird. I know we said this already, but when you introduce your kids to the new show, there used to be more to show them, and now mm-hmm. it's gone. Yeah. Uh, well, strap in, Katie, because later today we're going to talk about 1991, uh, but for now we can hold off on that. Uh, today's episode is about Once Upon a Time in the Waste, and the first thing I want to say about this is re-watching it as a standalone episode. Oh, I'm going to take some heat, but it's maybe my least favorite in the season. Get out of here. I love it. Yeah. It's not bad. It's not bad wow. at all. I mean, the, what I'm saying is this whole season is home runs. It's really great. But in terms of what happens in the episode compared to how much happens in other episodes, it's not super my favorite. Um, Tongue Lash was really cool. We got a lot of relationship moments, but... Um, without the episodes that sandwich around it, just talking about it on its own, I don't have too much to say. So I'm glad we have a very, very vocal guest with us today. Well, that's wild, because first of all, I don't play favorites because I love them all. That's not true, though. But I do love them all. Uh, this is my maybe my favorite of the season. Oh, wow. This or... Um or the next one are probably my two favorites of the season. It's hard to pick. Yeah, I wouldn't say this is my favorite of the season because I really like the last two episodes, but this episode definitely has my favorite moment in the entire season. Oh, nice. See, the first thing I want to say about it is that the title, Once Upon a Time in the Waste, is a tremendous pun courtesy of Josie Campbell, former guest of the show. Thank you, Josie. Uh, I love this so hard. Well, Once Upon a Time in the West is... You know, just generically a, a movie title, right? Right. But I, I, I automatically go to Will Smith uh, with the Wild Wild West and the like the actual song. Now, once upon a time in the waste, Catra lost her damn mind in the waste. Oh my God. Uh, so even though Lauren hates this episode and doesn't want to spend it. any time talking I don't, about oh, it, no. <laughs> um, so once upon a time in the waste. So. Essentially, this episode follows Katra and Scorpia on the parallel journey of the best friend squad last time, where they show up in the waste they happen upon Moss Eisley, which I'm going to keep calling it for lack of a better name. Uh, but Katra is really at the end of her rope in this episode. She's so tired of being considered disposable, and she's just done. So she has she goes into the bar, and she has this great line about threats only work on someone who has something to lose. I wrote down that quote. 
she's yeah and she's just like give me what i want like i don't care you can't hurt me i've had a horrible life she really it starts to feel almost jokery as as far as this like you can't do anything to me because i don't care about anything so she kind of enlists huntara's two minions from last time they lead her through the waste they get ambushed by uh tonglashore which they emphasize the or which i'm so happy about tonglashore and his gang which is huntara's rival gang uh, Katra beats Tonglashore in a really awesome fight, steals his whip and his jacket, and uh, suddenly she becomes like the leader of all of the gangs of the Crimson Waste. Meanwhile, the best friend squad plus Huntara gets into Mara's ship. They uh, they figure out how to access like the cockpit, and they see this like recording of a hologram Mara who basically tells Adora everything we've been suspecting about why Etheria is stranded in Despondos. Like... She had to – you might remember in the first season, Madame Raz said that Mara took the stars away. Well, she strands them in Despondos because she sees the um, destruction that the Horde is causing to other planets. And she f- calculates that the only way to save Etheria is to strand it and move it through a portal. And she basically tells Adora, your sword is uh, is the key to the planet, which Entrapta kind of figured out last episode. And whatever you do, do not use it to open a portal because then the Horde will come back and destruction will reign. Weirdly, Mara doesn't seem crazy at all, which is something we'll talk about, I'm sure. Catra uh, and Scorpia and their new gang happens upon the ship. They... Uh, they ca- uh, actually capture Adora because Scorpio learns how to be sneaky in this episode. But the best friend squad minus Adora and Huntara get away. Um, Catra and Scorpio have this like great party with their new like gang friends. Scorpio almost convinces Catra even not to go back to the fright zone, which is interesting. Scorpio's kind of on the side of like defecting because finally Catra is happy in this place. But then Adora tells Catra that Shadow Weaver left the fright zone to go to Bright Moon to help the rebellion. And all of a sudden, all of these like feelings in Catra come rushing back, these feelings of inadequacy and like kind of um, what's like, uh, what's the word I want? like resenting Adora for the attention she got that Catra never did. And so Catra's determined to go back to the Fright Zone with the sword, prove herself to Hordak how valuable she is, and and crush the rebellion. But it's certainly at this point a more personal quest than uh, a political one. And that's the end of the episode. And the fact that it becomes more personal, um, I won't necessarily talk about things that happen in later episodes, but it just becomes even more and more evident that this is as much about that this is definitely a personal thing for Catra as opposed to anything overarching. Yes. Uh, well, any uh, any sort of like overlasting horde order, I should say. Yeah, I don't think she cares about um, the horde versus the rebellion anymore. I think for her, it's all about hurting the people who hurt her. And it's really traumatic because uh, – so her and Scorpia do a lot of bonding in this episode, I feel like, I right? I love this episode because of that so much. I totally agree. And there's a part where Scorpia almost really gets Catra to, like, not go back. Uh, and then you see, like, all the abuse and all the trauma coming back in Catra as soon as, soon as she finds out that her mother figure has abandoned her for Adora again. And that's just, like – like, I can't fathom the hurt that she's feeling in that scene. Yeah. These scenes that are so emotional and so resonant, I think I think if I'm unboxing this for myself properly, it's not that I don't like this episode. It's that I really don't like Catra's behaviors in this episode. Catra's an amazing character. She's super well-written. We read that fan letter about her, about maybe being a villain who will get a redemptive arc someday. And 
she's just, to me, really cruel in this episode. Where you guys say Catcher and Scorpia bonded, I think they kind of did. But I truly think Catra is bullshitting through a lot of this episode. I think she knows that Scorpia loves her. And I think she realizes that Scorpia is useful if she kind of leads Scorpia on. And so there are a lot of romantic looks, gives her a jacket, gives a toast to her. And I don't know if it's all genuine. See, I, I did read it as genuine. Mm, I, 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 I read it as genuine the first time I watched it. And the second time I watched it, I started, think, I started thinking Catra was playing her. It, it came, it's, I, sort, I, I kind of fall in the middle with both of you. I think she's kind of leading Scorpia on until later when she has all the power and she's the leader of the company and she leads the toast to Scorpia. That to me reads genuine because at that point she doesn't necessarily need to keep Scorpia. She has everything she needs. She's got Adora. She's got no reason to sort of be like, I need to keep this useful tool with me. That's crappy, though. That is abuse behavior to be like, well, I finally got my agenda and I got everything else that I considered more important than you. And now that I have it, maybe I'll actually give you some attention. No, that's, that's very bogus. True. I, I guess, though, that like that's the point, right? Is like this is Catra free of her uh, of of her abuse. And sure, she perpetuates the cycle. But also, you know, because you talked about Sean's letter. Um, I'm reading it now. And he also says it's important to remember that these are all teenagers who've been like deeply traumatized. And so I think we're seeing Catra try to deal with not having that for the first time and like clumsily reaching out to Scorpia in the best way she can. Like to me, the toast is like a her weak attempts to make amends for treating Scorpia poorly. And, the whole time. And I think it's also worth I, I would like to point out that everything I'm about to say is not excusing Catra's behavior whatsoever. It's more just trying to find a motivation for it. The crappy things she does are one hundred percent crappy, and I'm not trying to invalidate that. But I feel like it's worth mentioning that Catra was raised in an abusive area with an abusive mom, and she doesn't really have any other like point of reference to go to. So it's one of those things where I just kind of want to be like, yeah, that's abusive and terrible. We need to correct you on that. But I also understand why that might necessarily be the first place she goes because she doesn't know any better. Yeah, that's how I feel, too. That's an important point, And I do concede it, especially given the results of this episode when she basically relapses and says, I'm going to prove myself to Hordak. We're going to build a portal. That th that is all based in her past, her values and what make her what makes her feel valuable is completely rooted in those teenage years with the horde. Scorpia observes that she's be that Catra's happy, and Catra doesn't know how to be happy or how to value herself or have any self worth outside of this one context. She just regresses and wants to go back to the context where maybe Hordak will give her a trophy. Right and. I mean, you said at the very beginning that you don't like this episode because Catra doesn't act correctly. But I think that's like that's very intentional, right? Like, I don't think we're supposed to see her as a hero. I think this is just a study of of her. W what does she do here? You know, like she thinks she's about to die and she's got nothing left. So what does that look like for her? She's not a hero, certainly. But it, it is, to me, an interesting look at, at her in this new context. And I, I feel like we can, uh, you know, not let the character off the hook while still wanting a better life for her. Like, mm -hmm. I was really, even though you know it's not going to happen because drama, I was hoping that she would stay in the waste with Scorpia and just, like, get to live, you know, a less pressureful life. But 
yeah, that scene at the end, uh, all it takes is hearing about Shadow Weaver and, and she's she's gone. And it's very tragic. I give that Catra is a super deep and super dynamic character. And I think the the limits and the external influencers that are a part of Catra's life are super consistently written. She's extraordinarily well done. I just can't get over the fact that I, I sort of, I, I think it's just personal preference. She's, she's really reading like a cringy edgelord at the beginning of this with the, my dreams are turning to dust in front of my eyes, like her, her monologue. I think for some people truly it would be very badass and very cool. And for me, I was like, Oh, it's every 14 year old version of myself that was like listening to punk and being angry. <laughs> but that's, that's the character, right? It is. Yeah. It is. To me, almost that's a mark of the episode's quality that they, they found words to put in her mouth that made you feel bad about who you were. Yeah. They, well, they just, it's just cringy. And I, I even said this about like the office. There are many popular forms of media where the second the humor makes me cringe or the characters make me feel you know, sort of reflective and uncomfortable. I just like, I hate all of this. I'm reacting very badly. <laughs> I don't like media that puts a mirror up to me. <laughs> I grew out of that. Don't make me think about it ever again. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, you know what? Doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. You know what I see here? All my hard work ignored because of one mistake. My dreams turning to dust in front of my eyes. But mainly I'm looking at that. Must be abandoned. According to Force Captain Orientation, the Crimson Waste is completely deserted. Yeah, it better be. I'm not in the mood to deal with... ...people. Or that information could be completely wrong. Man, maybe I should have skipped orientation. <laughs> you know what I mean? So one of the topics that Katie suggested that I really want to get into is the queer coding of characters. Katie actually can tell us more about this, but she wrote a paper on queer coding in Disney characters. And I think a lot of those symbols uh, can be seen in this episode, particularly in a couple of our newer characters, but also Katra. Uh, Katie, tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, so I this isn't this is sort of coming from an academic perspective, but it's also very much coming from the fact that like I am a bisexual woman, and I'm also a big fan of just a lot of things in media, uh, Harry Potter, Disney, Buffy, etc. You've heard me talk a lot about all of that. So a lot of animation people will go back to that like. Disney might not be the thing that inspired them to go into animation, but a lot of modern animation and a lot of what we consider to be animation goes all the way back to, like, how influential Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and how the Disney company continues to be. So even, like, I'm going to pull another cartoon, but it's slightly related because the voice actress for Catra also does a voice in this cartoon. Steven Universe, the entire final season, sorry for small spoilers to Steven Universe, but they uh, Rebecca Sugar went on and talked about how she essentially put Steven through the princess ringer to sort of get him through all of those various archetypes in order to get to uh, what ended up being the culmination point of season five. And there are certainly... And she's sort of playing with that, and I see that in She-Ra and the princesses, Princess of Power and also how that relates to sort of sort of taken from Disney and how that spreads out in animation. How that goes into queer coding. I'm just going to quickly give a brief 
summary of queer coding and how that is in media. I'm going to obviously do it in relation to Disney because that's what my paper's on, and then we can dive into the episode. Uh, Just another quick note that a lot of my paper and research sort of began with the nostalgia chick Lindsay Ellis and Rantasmo video, Disney Needs More Gay. So if you want to sort of get another starting point, I would look up that video. It's not on YouTube anymore. It's on Yahoo Video. Uh, But basically, queer coding is the concept that we're taking uh, bits and stereotypes and things that we associate with typically queer people and queer culture and putting it on a character. The character might be interested in members of the opposite sex, but the way that we differentiate the character is and make them different from our typical heterosexual, heteronormative hero of the film is that we differentiate them in these ways. So men tend to be a little bit more femme, a little bit more... uh, Slim, prim, proper, sort of going back to the tradition of the English fop, which is kind of the beginning part of that. Uh, And women, uh, women characters tend to be a bit more butch, tend to be a bit more masculine, tend to be a bit more um, what we would associate, what the common stereotype we would associate with lesbians. Uh, You typically see this in a lot of older Disney films with their villains, uh, particularly... Oh, God. Uh, The 90s films are a really good example of this because Ursula from The Little Mermaid is literally based off of the drag queen Divine. And I could do an entire podcast about how Howard Ashman put in a bunch of queer culture Easter eggs into that movie. But we're not going to do that right now. Um, Another thing is Radcliffe from... Pocahontas is super, super gay. He's got the pigtails. He's dressed in all purple. His entire song has him literally throwing off a a glittery cape talking about how he hopes to, like, get a ton of gold. It's a a thing. And we also see it in our... uh, in our comedic relief characters, particularly in 90s films, uh, in a positive way. Queer coding is not necessarily positive or negative. I continually talk about how Timon and Pumbaa and The Lion King are arguably the best example of same-sex parenting in media. (laughs) It's a wide topic, and there's a lot to talk about. Um... Another thing that another thing that comes from the English fop tradition that goes into uh, queer coding is characters will tend to have a British accent even if they aren't British. And yes, I'm looking right at you, Jafar. Yes, and Scar, and sort Scar. Of, yeah. Both of them also looking like they're wearing eyeliner and. Uh, I just have such, you can talk about this much more academically than I can, Mm -hmm. but the visceral reaction I have to that is just, Disney has shown us over and over and over this message that if you are, if you don't fall into a gender binary, you are probably evil. (laughs) Well, yes, I agree with you, but I'm also going to sort of take a little bit of Mouse's advocate for a second and uh, just talk a little bit about the Disney company. And like, yes, this is bad. This is terrible. This is something they've been doing since the beginning. However, there is a couple of shades in gray in there. Uh, It is worth mentioning that the Disney company in particular uh, rates 100% on the human rights campaign uh, sort of equality scale on how you treat LGBTQ workers in the workplace. And they've been at 100% for like the past 16 years. Uh, There's also quite a few people who work on the films who are gay or homosexual. Uh, Howard Ashman, who is arguably the reason the Disney renaissance exists, uh, was a gay man. And I 
you can look in Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid in particular and see his influence and his sort of playing with the classic tropes that would sort of eventually lead to some changes down the line. There's also quite a few gay voice actors who voice these characters. Rosie O'Donnell for Turk uh, in Tarzan. You've got Nathan Lane for Timon in The Lion King. Jonathan Groff is the voice of Kristoff in Frozen. And even sort of Disney's recent, recent shift away from romantic stories for their characters we sort of it's a pixar film but it's basically a disney film uh brave especially since merit is part of the disney princess franchise there's no romantic story there in frozen uh elsa doesn't have a romantic story and anna has one but it's very it's very much a self-aware one in the same vein as Enchanted, where it's like we're going to take this trope that we're sort of known for and toss it on its head moana doesn't have a romantic story to it um, so Disney itself is also sort of shifting away from heteronormative storytelling. It's still there. I'm not going to say that it's not, but it is definitely becoming less of a consistent thing. Zootopia doesn't have a romantic story to it. Yeah. And I think, um, kind of, kind of in line with the conversations we've had earlier about, we're not dismissing thing X, Y, Z, but Sometimes I worry that big corporations like Disney are only doing this because now it has become profitable Mm -hmm. to do so. Now a queer story or a non-romantic story even could be profitable. So now they'll do it. But, you know, it's still if it if it still moves us towards an inclusive society and it moves us towards a more realistic view of society, then maybe the motivation isn't so bad. Yeah, I guess what I'd say is, is that a worry? Because like. Hot take, no art exists without commerce. And so even She-Ra and the Princesses of Power wouldn't exist if some wonderful executive at DreamWorks hadn't understood that, like, it's cool to have a queer show. Like, people will still watch it, right? So I, I don't really care that it is financially motivated because why is it financially motivated? Because society is changing. Because it's not a, a black mark on your books anymore to embrace these things, right? Mm-hmm. Companies will never ever do the right thing because it's the right thing. They're motivated purely by profit. But what motivates that profit is, I think, the fact that that's changing is is what we can latch onto as a positive. Right. The, the motivator for the profit-driven company is the fact that together we're becoming a better world. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, just to sort of say a thing, because I know I'm coming off very much like, oh, Disney's great and Disney does no wrong. Disney does a lot wrong. <laughs> I am at no point saying, oh, my God, this big corporation is like the best thing to ever happen in the world because it's not. But to sort of remove that from the conversation of animation and the conversation of pop culture uh, would do a disservice. And I think it's also worth mentioning that the uh because I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about queer coding in this episode, even though a lot of it is less coding and more just like actual text. Right, which but, is something I want to ask you about. But yeah, go yeah. ahead. But this isn't the first cartoon in recent history to have that. Uh, the best example I can think of that sort of had a little controversy at the time was Legend of Korra, where among other issues and not even necessarily related to uh, Korra and Asami getting together at the end, spoiler, uh, Nickelodeon pulled the show off of the TV network and had it be released completely online because it wasn't getting enough uh, views on it. Uh, And then later, uh, after sort of Legend of Korra, and that became real big, that got a positive response. You've got the film Paranorman, where it's revealed at the end that like one of the main characters has a boyfriend. And he's, I haven't, 
seen the film, I'm sorry. Uh, but he's sort of the jockey football character. He's what you would associate with your stupid, dumb, blonde jock. Uh, and there's this running gag that like one of the girls in the main cast has a crush on him, and it's revealed at the end that he has a boyfriend. Uh, and then later, we've sort of seen that come up. Star versus the Forces of Evil, which I've kind of been watching concurrently with She-Ra. I'm finishing up the fourth season. Uh, there's a background scene in one of the concert, uh, like Star and Marco go to a concert, and in the background scene where couples are kissing, you can see same-sex couples kissing. And even in the changes of the Disney Channel, because that moment in Star versus the Forces of Evil has happened, but previously on an episode of Gravity Falls, they wanted to show a gay character, and the Disney Channel banned that and wouldn't let Alex Hurst show that in Gravity Falls. So as sort of a thing of protest, Mabel, one of the main characters of Gravity Falls, is shown wearing a rainbow sweater. You said something that I think is really interesting, which is Shira's queerness is more explicit, which is totally true. Uh, I think Lauren's mentioned we're actually credited on the Shira wiki with Noel Stevenson breaking here that like yeah the show is the gay agenda. Yeah, the the yeah. I I just listened to that episode this week because I've been catching up. Uh, the rainbow on the show is literally the gay agenda. Yeah, and I know that Noel Stevenson is also in a relationship with a woman, and that's a very intentional thing on DreamWorks's part, which I appreciate totally. But you know, all that said, there is still I think an issue of coding, perhaps because of these characters' ages or because they just don't want over sexuality in a in a kids adventure show scorpio just wants to be friends you guys they just want to be gal pals friends right everyone wants friends that's such a loaded word in this show it feels like well coding wise and i'm not saying this is bad because i am here for it but we visually are really taking katra in a direction now by giving her <laughs> yes. a leather jacket and a whip we are, <laughs> we are we are going full faith lahane and i'm here for it Woo, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> you didn't. No, I, I'm not. I'm not as attuned to these things. I'm sorry. No, there's there there is yeah. It's very very gay. Um, and actually, one thing I wanted to go back to uh, with Scorpia, uh, who my fir- my first note for her is so so gay. Uh, but I also had the question of horde homophobia, where just going back, and I'm also going to briefly bring up the bit with Bo and his two dads. So we see in certain aspects in the kingdoms that gayness and gay couples are allowed, but I think that might vary from kingdom to kingdom. I almost wonder, just going to Bo's parents, if um, the reason they reacted so strongly to Bo essentially coming out and being like, I'm not really a scholar. I like archery, is that they sort of had this moment deep in their hearts where it's like, oh God, we couldn't tell our parents that we were gay and our own son felt like he couldn't talk to us. Mm. And I almost wonder if in the horde, maybe gayness is looked down upon. So maybe Scorpia has some internalized homophobia and that's why she's just like, I have these intense friend feelings and I want to be close to you, but I don't know how else to phrase this. Like I would not put it past the horde and Hordak to be like only straight marriages. We have to produce more for the horde. Well, and that's interesting because this is the first episode in my estimation where Scorpia, we see that she would abandon them for yeah. her friend. I would also like to point out, and I've Trin Garitano, I love friendshipping. I love Trin so much. I've not actually met her. I just know of her and think she's great. Uh, but she made a good point in the Whiteout episode that Scorpia doesn't really listen to boundaries. This is kind of the first episode where it feels like Scorpia is actually giving Catra the space Agree. that Catra wants. Agree. Um, and also she doesn't call Catra Kitty in this episode. The only person who calls Catra Kitty is one of Huntara's lackeys. So I think Scorpia is also sort of learning to be a better friend possibly 
Yeah, and I think we could maybe extrapolate that in the same way that this is Catra outside of her traumatizing environment, Scorpia too is now free of this like rigid structure, and this is like the real her coming out for a moment. Mm-hmm. You could tie all of those points together, really. Like, is is the horde homophobic? Are we learning boundaries? Did they have any boundary education? It's all the same thing. It's all the fact that the horde was oppressive toward, I think, just emotional output mm-hmm. at all. Um, one of my favorite moments in this episode is that Katra experiences her first party. Mm-hmm. And we saw, we saw Adora have her first party in season one. And so one by one, it's basically like this indoctrination being shaken off. Not just you can experience romantic feelings, but you can experience happiness and bonding and unproductive partying, you know, all of the above once you're free. I mean, we know for a fact that the Horde isn't truthful. While they're on their way to the elephant graveyard, I'm sorry, the bar, uh, in the waste, uh, they are, uh, the Catra, uh, like, Scorpius says something about, oh, everything in Force Captain training says that the waste is completely deserted. And then even Catra says later of, like, of course Hordak is wrong about this. He's a shut-in who never leaves his lab. So we know that the Horde explicitly is giving them misinformation to lead them in a certain direction. And I think even if we... There's not really textual evidence that the Horde is like anti-queer, although I think certainly we can read the subtext. But there is textual evidence that they're very high on... uh, homogeneity like they have their stormtroopers you know and then they have their force captains which exhibit some diversity but they all wear uniforms and there's not a lot of room for dissent or difference in the horde yeah well it, even just talking about characters in the background um well we're at uh princess prom and we're seeing characters in the background and we're seeing straight couples we're seeing couples gay straight all of the variations of gender and orientations abound at this princess prom, uh, which maybe that's part of that tradition in the princess prom with Frosta. I don't know. Uh, but in the horde, even if you're looking in the backgrounds, like you don't really, uh, to be fair, I didn't really pay attention to the backgrounds until this episode, but I don't think you really see anyone romantically entwined. It's all military. What about Kyle and Rogelio? <laughs> They're the kind of like li- low down. So uh, yeah, what's, Kind of overall, what's your take on this whole, like, friend language? Like, I guess cutting to the core of it, how many romances do you see, like, just beneath the surface text here, like, waiting to bubble up? Well, this is more of a straight romance, and maybe it's because I have a lot of love for Ron and Hermione. I might be one of the few Harry Potter fans who actually really likes the Ron and Hermione relationship. But I'm kind of a glow shipper. I like the idea of glow, of Glimmer and Bo getting together. Interesting. I think that would be very, very cute. Um, obviously, uh, Scorpia and... Uh, I'm not sure I would say Scorpia and Catra. I think it's definitely one-sided, and that's also kind of how I feel about Catra and Adora. It feels very one-sided. How about Adora Huntara? I know some young fans on Twitter had fun with that. I could see why you would have fun with that. Um, I would need to see more of those characters interact. Sure. Uh, I'm I'm very big into the Natasa Spinnerella camp, even though we haven't really seen them much. I, I, want, I want. Well, and more. they're confirmed. It's a bummer. I want, yeah, they're confirmed. Well, I'm also a terrible shipper in that a lot of my ships tend to be ships that end up being canon. <laughs> so I I maybe I'm unimaginative in that way. So are you anti Bo Perfuma? Because that's one of my favorites. I like Bo Perfuma. I wouldn't say I'm anti. I just and I actually really liked that they went on a date together. I thought they were very, very cute. Um, But I 
I don't know. My view on ships is very much like, uh, ship whatever. There are certain things yeah. that I'm very much like, no about. Like but... no Hordak and Trapta. That's yeah, gross. No, that's a bit gross <laughs> to me. Yeah. I, find, I find a lot of the most obvious ships in this show... Like, I'm happy that they exist, right? Like, thank goodness we live in a world where Catradora can be a thing and Catrascorpia can be a thing. Hooray. Like, hooray we've gotten that far. I also don't think any of these are healthy relationships, and I just kind of hope they all meet new people once they get out of this conflict and start mm-hmm. adjusting and get into therapy. I think it's really interesting in general that uh, people ship a lot of duos in this show where there's, like, a one-way admiration. Uh how does that relate with the queer coding issue? Like, do should we always see admiration as like a crush or, or is it just like hard to divorce because, I don't know, maybe in an environment where we're not given the text, we, we put so much into the subtext because it could be anywhere? That is a fantastic question. I wouldn't say it always, uh, first of all, I wouldn't say admiration always reads as that 100% of the time. I think part of it is that the characters are so close in age, and I realize there are people who ship characters with giant age gaps, but there are plenty of like examples just in the Harry Potter series of Harry being very admirable of Minerva McGonagall and Dumbledore, and certainly those ships have their place, but I definitely wouldn't say that they're the predominant ones. So I think it's sort of, I think it part of it is an age thing. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, one way is easy to do when you're doing queer coding because that's the easiest way to confirm that it doesn't become like a like a canon ship if only one person feels that way. So I and in the past I could see that being a very very common thing. But there's even a real good example like in Frozen where there's a one. Uh, one-way love relationship and that's a straight relationship so i guess it kind of, i guess it varies i don't know that's not one that i've done a whole ton of research on and can speak to you so i don't want to say something absolutely wrong and then get roasted on the internet i want to get into some classic stuff if we can yeah no yeah. we should we're running, we're running tight tongue lashore is a masters of the universe throwback yes how bizarre. So I always reference this interview because it's the only point we have. Tim Seeley told us that when he was writing the series Bible, that the only Masters characters, princesses of power, knew they could use were He-Man and Hordak. Now, obviously things changed. Tim even said that could have changed because later he got the directive to add in the rest of the Horde. So we've kind of seen Grizzlore. But Tongue Lashore is a really weird one because he is not even a Horde person. He was uh, released as an evil snake man in 1985, but he showed up in the Horde in the She-Ra cartoon. You might remember he's the guy who sounds like Wallace Shawn who taught Hordak's evil classroom in the book burning episode. So this is a totally different take on Tongue Lashore. He's a badass here. He's like a badass biker bro. Yeah, I, I, uh, my brief note that I had on Tongue Lashore, uh, because Disney's always on my mind, is that he's a little, he's like a strong boy parody, like a little bit like Gaston, except maybe a little, except obviously way less, uh, you know, gonna rally the town to come and burn down your castle and destroy all your furniture. Yes, hard feel that. I, I think he is supposed to be like an alpha parody yeah. in a lot of ways. I really liked 
the dialogue in this scene, how Catra and Scorpio were just not taking him seriously whatsoever and were quipping in the background sort of about his name and Scorpio saying, you don't even know how to use a whip. And Catra's response is, oh, it can't be that hard. This guy figured it out. Well, Tongue Lasher is like standing there basically demanding satisfaction. Yeah. And yeah. they really they really minimize him. And it was a great, a great exchange. I like that whip. I think I'll be taking it. <laughs> He's honorable, too, which is really bizarre. I don't know if anyone else caught this, but I got the impression he was a gang leader, but, like, a fair one. He gets sand thrown in his face, and he calls Katra a cheater. Yeah, yeah, I wrote that down. As if parameters had been set for, like, the right way to do this. And then when he falls into the quicksand and Katra sort of fake asks for him to extend his whip, he buys it right away. He thinks, oh, well, I lost, and that's it, and now I'm going to get saved here in the honorable waste in my honorable gang. I was like, this poor guy. He might be dead now. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah no, that, I actually paid attention to that because I was worried that maybe he drowned in the quicksand, and maybe the quicksand is just not as quick as we think it is, but in that entire scene where he's there, it just stays at his shoulders. So I think... Maybe he was just stuck. Someone will come get him eventually. Yeah, that was yeah. sort of my thought. Uh, also, you cheating a little. My note is cheating or resourceful, which just adds another point into my Catra is totally a Slytherin because one of the things uh, that Slytherins are known for is being resourceful and being cunning. I was just so surprised to see Tongue Lashore. It's such an interesting pull. And like maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it says to me that like, a lot of classic characters are on the table because why would you negotiate a contract for this? You know, like you could easily make up a guy who looks like a snake and call him something different. So there must, there's something. Well, Eric, we know Kyle is just He-Man in disguise. (laughs) I often find myself wondering watching this show because you're right, why do this? And it could go in either direction. It could go that there is some grand plan filled with Masters of the Universe characters and at the end we're going to crack it open and all of our favorite characters are going to be here and it was the plan all along or it's the opposite and it's just like Motu fans are going to get excited no matter what we pull and whatever we can get the rights to we're going to find a place for it we're going to shoehorn it in because people are going to love it and that's fine with me too because I do love it that's true it's entirely possible that like whoever controls the Masters characters is like "Eh, we don't really care about Tongue Lasher you can have him Yeah, well, uh, that sort of ties into another thing that I wrote down. I think both of you probably have more to talk about regarding Mara because most of my notes are on Scorpia and Catra because Scorpia is one of my top three favorite characters. Um, But there's a bit with Mara where she refers to herself as the She-Ra of Etheria, which makes me think, are there She-Ra's on other planets? Is it possible that maybe there's two adoras and this isn't necessarily the adora that's like he-man's sister and that's on another planet i had that question too and we should dive into it because i know we're running a little short on time uh she-ra of etheria was very much presented like she-ra is a title and i think we Mm -hmm. knew that already but then later when we actually see the mara hologram she ties it to the sword she says you have the sword so you must be she-ra I was supposed to be the last. And so it's definitely connected to the sword and passed down through individuals. And it, it that's not a that's not me answering the question. It's just me kind of adding more fuel to the fire. I'm not sure if she's saying the sword maybe moved around and 
when I had the sword, I was on Etheria, or if she's actually saying there are more, you know, Shiraz on different planets. Well, hypothetically speaking, there might be a planet where, like, that's their military force, kind of similar to the Valkyries in, uh, I, I guess, Thor Ragnarok. I know that there's a thing in the comics. I haven't read the comics. Sorry, folks. Um, but there's an, there's a common thing where... Maybe that's the all-female military force. They're the She-Ra's, and they're sort of like, maybe they have ambassadors on other planets, and just a bunch of those swords are made. Well, let's talk about Mara. So a few episodes ago, I mentioned that Noel said at their San Diego panel that Mara is a reference to a He-Man character that no one understood. And I'm like, oh, she must mean Hero, the ancient He-Man from Preternia. Well, no. There's actually literally a character named Mara, uh, which was in plain sight. It's just no one remembers the new adventures of He-Man because why would you ever think that this would be referenced? Mara is straight up a character from the 1991 new uh, new adventures of He-Man. She even kind of dresses in her battle armor like the Mara that we saw in the hologram. So Mara in that show is like the assistant, which is a little weird, to the old wizened sage who brings Prince Adam to the future to save humanity. And she develops romantic feelings for Adam throughout the course of the series. Apparently, I've never watched this show because I can't get into it. She ends up becoming a warrior in her own right. And so now I think my head canon is that Princesses of Power is how New Adventures might have handled She-Ra. Like, what if Mara leaves? Because, again, her ship looks a lot like the Starship Eternia, which is the ship in New Adventures. What if Mara, like, pilots that ship to, like, find... Uh, another, you know, like to to, uh, help the future by like colonizing a new world. And this is how all this happens. I don't know. It's just a weird pull. You're getting, I think you're getting somewhere valid. She definitely says we were the first ones, first ones, to settle here and study this planet's magic. And so there, there was some intent to better her humans society or I don't even know if we'd call them humans by colonizing this place and learning what they could from it. She also mentions light hope and a weapon. And so does anyone have any thoughts on, on light hope? Did light hope come with Mara or was light hope here from the beginning? That's a good question. I sort of assumed light hope was a bit similar to, um, sort of like the computer on Star Trek sort of mixed with the oh my god why am I forgetting the name of the hologram room oh uh, the holodeck yeah the holodeck so I sort of assumed that like part of first one's tech means that you can kind of turn the entire ship into a holodeck and light hope is just kind of a semi AI sentient version of that yeah I assume light hope came with as like first one's tech myself I think that's pretty accurate I mean, she might have been designed after, because this is a thing in Star Trek, too, where uh, holograms will basically be designed after living people in the world. The best example of this is the Doctor in Voyager, who's a Doctor program designed after an actual Doctor in the Federation. So maybe Light Hope is sort of similar, where the she's based off of the designer of the program mm. or someone else from uh, Eternia. Good pull. Good pull. Uh, and that it would totally track if Eternia was the name of the starship, especially if they don't have free reign on all the He-Man characters, because then they don't have to go to a planet populated with all these characters they don't have copyright access to. I would still like it 
to be the name of her home, her actual home planet, yeah. but it might not be. But what I'd like to talk about before we close is it, more importantly to like the show itself. Mara is not crazy. No. No, and that is an interesting that that's maybe one of the main things that concerns me about Light Hope is that Light Hope frames what Mara has done with Despondos as a, a, a crazy act, as an unstable failure. So Light Hope, I think, wanted to do something else. We hear Light Hope, blah, 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 static, static weapon, as if Light Hope maybe wanted to fight back or had some sort of different plan. And Mara's the one who said, nope, we are isolating ourselves. The quote she says is, I couldn't stop them before, but I can now. And so I'm wondering if Mara making a a sane and stable but executive decision, like a unilateral decision, is what made Lighthope and others frame her as crazy simply because they didn't agree that this was the best strategy. So just a specific thing that I want to bring up regarding Lighthope, because I think we're it's pretty clear at this point that Lighthope is probably more computer than human and also that she has no idea how humans or organics work depend like she doesn't realize that adora doesn't remember being taken from a portal because she's a baby so maybe i almost wonder i don't know if light hope light hope might interpret her as crazy but maybe only in the sense that like mara made the decision that wasn't completely sane you know mara made a grave error like a computer would that's a great point like oh she didn't calculate all the angles or whatever but yeah, she seems to have a lot of uh, wherewithal about her. And also, it does seem like that Luke Skywalker choice of, like, I did this to save the people I care about. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't mean she's crazy. It just means she she's, cares. She's running, on, she's running on a logic that Light Hope I don't think has access to. Yeah, I An think that's An emotional intelligence. Right. Yeah, exactly. We see Adora actually, um, in my opinion, becoming stronger and stronger, even as Adora. In this episode, there were a couple of moments that really struck me. Namely, when they first entered the ship and they were told the ship is haunted, as they were progressing through, some bats flew out. And in a couple of different instances, Glimmer and Bo are screaming and flailing, and Adora's just planted. She's got her shield, she's got her battle face on, and she is done being frightened by any of this. Her tenacity and desire to learn about her origin and what's going on here is just overpowering any fear she might have had. Meanwhile, a couple episodes ago, Lighthope said, it's happening again, as if Adora becoming more powerful and more sure of herself and more curious, which to us looks like power, is a problem Mm. for Lighthope. Mm. These are questions the season will unpack, although not fully, because at the end of the episode, our heroes are in a real bind. Yeah, the look on Catra's face at the end of this is very well animated. It's very, uh, vis- just caused a real visceral reaction. I went, oh no, everyone is in such trouble. I was just listening to a documentary uh, yesterday about gun control and about how the Second Amendment was brought before the Supreme Court to be interpreted because of literally one guy. There were a bunch of people who would have wanted that court case to be heard by the Supreme Court, but in order for that to happen, they would have had to prove that they were damaged somehow. And nobody was able to do it except for this one dude. One guy was able to prove that he wanted a gun and the Second Amendment and how it was being interpreted kept him from getting one. Therefore, his personal freedom had been infringed upon. He quit his job 
to push this issue. And now if you listen to this documentary, it's the um, gun show episode of the podcast More Perfect. Mm -hmm. You can hear how this one dude in America basically played a huge role in gun control or the lack thereof in the United States. Mm -hmm. Think of all the people who have died even in the past month in America because everyone has the right to bear arms. And that means assault rifles. That means whatever at this point, because one person kind of was a catalyst to change the way we talk about it and the way we think about weapons. To tie it back, Catra's just one person. And at the end of this episode, I went, wow, Catra's emotional instability and Catra's trauma and pain is about to affect the entire world. Mm -hmm. And it super does. It's very scary. Hey, Catra! Whoa there, gotta be careful, boss. Catra, you okay? We are going back. <gasps> we are going to open a portal. And we are going to crush them all. Katie, if our listeners wanted to learn more about you, maybe read some of your work or talk to you about this show, how could they get in touch with you? That is a fantastic question. I'm kind of non-existent on the internet. The sort of best way to find me, and this is the nerdy, probably one of the more nerdy things you've heard on this podcast, I have a role play Twitter account for a character. Um, I created an original character for the Harry Potter universe, sort of tied in with the all is well year. She would be starting the same year as uh, as Lily Potter. Uh, I haven't actually updated it in a real, real long time, but I still have that Twitter account. It's at Keyleth's Windbasket, but I couldn't get the entire thing up there. So it's Keyleth, like the character in Critical Role, and then Windbasket spelled W-N-D-B-S-K-T because I couldn't actually get all the vowels in there and have it fit. So that's probably the best way to publicly find me. And I, used also, to, I used to do Harry Potter live journal roleplay. Yeah. It's cool. Well, it was more just because I talked about this a little bit, but there's a lot of uh, people have a lot of issues with how J.K. Rowling is taking Harry Potter and the fandom right now, and sort of one of the ways that I handle things is like well maybe I'll do it my own way so I was like well what if I have this character named Beatrix Pruitt who's actually going to Hogwarts and then I tell the stories about Hogwarts that I would want to see and it's through her perspective on a Twitter account so and I have not actually updated it in a real long time so sorry guys but if you have any questions you want to ask me out of character that's probably the best way to do it. Is your paper available anywhere on queer coding in Disney? It is not unfortunately. All right never mind. That's okay. <laughs> But my essay on the Joker and Lady Gaga is still very available. Uh, University of Mississippi, damn it. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressive of power. <laughs>